we go. And turn off the extra EMF and learn how to toggle these toggles. We are a network of individuals who have been severely physically harmed because we tried to communicate the circumstances of our communities and emergent solutions that would have prevented the disasters that are being experienced around this coronavirus pandemic. The issues that are confronting the public now were being called out by people who it was decided should not be listened to. That was wrong. Write or broadcast this. As I watch people I have known welcome new babies into a self-isolated, social distancing world, I realize that they are saying to those new babies things they said to me when I was young, too. They said, we love you so very much, and I thought this was true. I think they thought it was true, too. But when I tried to connect to the safety of those who had said they loved me, there was no one with time to save my life. There was no one with bandwidth to recognize what I was urgently communicating, always telling the truth. This is not a small thing. I was sex trafficked as a result. Is that what it feels like to be loved? Where did my family and community go? All I can say is it was poisoned and it's all still going on the way it goes. How will those little babies know? It's actually recording. Like that, except... Intuitive public intersections. In addition to terrible intersections of racism, sexism, ableism, and bigotry, more commonly discussed, still desperately not enough, our members of intuitive community are experiencing intersections that others overwhelmingly misunderstand, mischaracterize, or have never encountered. The effects of these misunderstandings and mischaracterizations are immediately and consistently life-threatening. Intersections in need of intuitive community include severe physical disability, high environmental sensitivities, capital-driven professionalism, financially motivated labeling, forced care, and medical coercion, housing insecurity and traumatic homelessness, prolonged unnecessary traumatic physical isolation from human contact, the effects of ubiquitous, fraudulently or under-researched environmental contaminants, 
divergent or physically compromised communication capacity, family or community abuse based on misinformation from marketers, medical professionals, and policymakers, including non-evidence-based psychiatric marketing, lived experiences shared truthfully but denied or refused acknowledgement. This list includes some but not all relevant intersections. If you would like to add to it, reach out to us at this email address, hello at intuitive.social. The compounded intersectional trauma that emerges around these signposts creates invisible apocalypse circumstances for individuals and families long before the uninitiated are able to notice or verify what's going on. When survivors of severity are brave enough to tell the truth and ask for help, everyone must listen closely. We are each and all responsible to create safe community for one another. Both Zia and Gilda are survivors of environmental illness and toxic injury. Zia is in extreme terror experiencing overwhelming physical harm almost every day because of circumstances that are easy, safe, and simple to resolve with a basic set of community resources. We can affect her day-to-day -day life so enormously by tuning in and finding out what she needs. We realize we feel ashamed not to be doing it. Gilda is in a stressful set of situations. She's lucky to have some resources in order to support herself. She empathizes with the suffering everywhere and wants to do what she can to help. She can't interact much because of her own challenges, but she is part of our intuitive community because we stay in touch and she keeps an eye out for where she can pitch in. These are two members of our intuitive community we wanted you to meet. You may notice that they experience their lives very differently, and yet they are both included in the caring and safe communities that together we are building. On the subject of intuitive public intersections, some of the intersections listed result in, for instance, people's bodies being overtaken by parasitic infections that kill them slowly and horribly over time while they struggle homeless or living in their cars. They get driven out of houses by super toxic mold and other biotoxins or contaminants but people around them do not also experience the same effects. 
The more we compile documentation, the more it appears that the people around them are experiencing different, often subclinical effects that are allowing them to differentiate themselves from and usually abandon the survivor they're in contact with. These survivors tell the truth to their friends and family, but they are not believed because of misinformation in public policy and marketing. No one listens to them. No one helps them. We listen to them and we stay in touch with them daily or as much as possible. We include them in our community in every way we can. We make sure we are always building communities that remember and center them because no one else does. This is the most important part of creating the intuitive public radio we are using and the core of our efforts building what we call intuitive community. When we listen to these friends, we find out that they are dying slowly with their skin melting or burning or cracking with toxins oozing out of them being unable to breathe. We find out that they have been asking for their basic and reasonable needs to be met since long before it got this bad. Because expressions of real physical trauma are typically mischaracterized in a way that scapegoats the person experiencing real physical trauma, we have made huge efforts to specifically document that. Everyone's experience of these intersections are different. Each of my references is a for instance. Many are unable to prevent themselves from being trafficked or otherwise victimized. Some of our community members are literally being drugged and raped every day for lack of simple, continuing, compassionate conversation and community contact. They are lost causes who are too extreme but they are neither of those things. Professionals and service agencies don't know how to help them, but we do know exactly how to help them. There are specific measures we could be taking immediately. When survivors share with us and when we respect their lived expertise, we have immediate solutions to many or all of the most difficult problems called out by the COVID-19 terrorized mainstream, which I have to admit has been infuriating. We support survivors of severity who have been excluded from care or community and try to find ways to help while they send us pictures of sometimes buckets of live parasites that have overtaken their bodies or scramble to find some place they can go where traffickers will not engage with them. Doctors and other providers are afraid to have contact with them or treat them because professional organizations are full of misinformation about them. 
we haven't been able to reach anyone helpful at actual trafficking prevention organizations. And because we have documented how traffickers are taking advantage of this kind of social destruction in every mainstream community we've examined, we don't know what it means that mainstream trafficking prevention organizations have not recognized us yet. We would be safer communicating these things with many professionals and many organizations if we simply had more day-to-day able-bodied friends. When we don't, just trying to say something about it highlights our vulnerability to those willing to take advantage of us. Police almost always end up harming survivors like these. As far as I know, there is zero outreach conversation that has been offered compassionately to police and other services so that they could possibly know that they are harming individuals in these ways. It is unfortunately not covered by current discussions about race, but it definitely exacerbates harms to those whose difficulty with police is about race. This also scapegoats police officers and at taxpayers' expense increases first responders' PTSD for lack of the accurate information we've been compiling. Specifically in regards to police, they have particularly high levels of EMF around their equipment and problematic toxins in their uniforms. So when they interact with these sensitive people, the people they are interacting with are being physically harmed before any first responder even touches them. The first responders have no idea this is happening. Then the survivors are punished for their natural predictable responses to severe EMF sensitivity and increasing toxic load as they struggle to be polite and communicate effectively in the midst of the invisible danger this puts them in. Police, of course, don't seem to have been informed about any of these things. They are dependent on training and established policies. Related harms to members of the police and other first responders are ignored or dismissed in cruel ways, widening the divide and increasing compounded collective gaslighting. We have tried to reach people who could help us have this conversation and not been successful. We try to communicate with survivors, families, and communities to support what they are saying, that they are telling the truth. But their families and communities disbelieve them and cut them off from assistance usually because a professional or a marketing initiative has told them that is appropriate. Suicidality comes into play frequently 
and is misconstrued as a mental deficiency or character deficiency with no regard for the extreme continuing physical harm the person is documenting. When we try to broach these intersections at everyday opportunities, people say, call the police, go to a doctor. They think that there is help for people experiencing these things. There is not. When they use those exclamation marks, our ability to communicate often shuts down because we realize there's a chance that person may send uninformed doctors or police to us, possibly killing us. We are continuing to document every case where someone reaches out for help and experiences life-threatening harm instead of receiving compassionate assistance. <sighs> Countless people are dying slowly over time of health conditions that have become so apocalyptic no one believes them when they talk, especially when, unsurprisingly, they use unique trauma languages to communicate. Because these people are being physically tortured to death, no one wants to be around them. No one believes them or believes in them. No one has the time or bandwidth to be in contact with them or to learn properly to learn to properly understand the trauma language they are speaking. They are eaten and poisoned from the inside out while most others try to ignore them. But if we weren't ignoring them, we would already have solutions to our worst public health problems. We would already have Many of these individual survivors have worked courageously through extreme destruction of their bodies in order to create safe opportunities and safer communities. We have been working with them to compile community knowledge bases so that their work can be recognized and continued and so that if we can save their lives in time, they have clear options for income streams based on what they've already been doing. We have not found any mental health professionals who would recognize these populations only keep their distance. We've been doing this since long before this current coronavirus crisis, trying to get the attention of literally anyone who is un or less affected by these same extreme intersections. 
A huge amount of what is happening around the current coronavirus crisis is easily preventable if we had been listening to these people. We can still listen to them if we can confront the results of not having listened to them. Ay, 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 ay. We can still listen to them if we can confront the results of having not listened to them. So when another member of our community may die that day, but perhaps doesn't, and may die the next day, but perhaps doesn't, and may die the next day, but perhaps doesn't, this affects a huge number of individuals, and we are listening to as many of them as we can. It's not being alive if you're experiencing being killed over and over again. But then your body is still somehow up and moving. Each person who is experiencing repeated deaths like these, having their neurological function wiped out by extreme physical trauma, and then trying to rebuild it and function again, and usually doing this without safe food or safe water or reasonable medical supplies, they are just food for scapegoaters or traffickers. Every day while others find comfort or ways to enjoy themselves, survivors of these intersections have literally and physically and hugely unnecessarily died another death. And it's all happening in situations where the dying survivors have real, relevant, effective, actionable solutions for themselves and for the people who are not yet dying every day. It is the most horrific, invisible waste. I was little when I learned the word Eisteddvod, and a little older when I learned the plural Eisteddvodai. The final syllable is pronounced to rhyme with I. Those two Ds in the middle are a TH sound like the Eisteddvod. We had a Welsh alphabet hanging in the house amidst carved wooden love spoons, photographs, heirlooms, and family mementos, all that survived the circumstances we'd grown through. I knew a little of where those things came from and what they meant. I was much older when I came to understand more about what had happened to the Welsh. All the Eisteddfodai I engaged with and all the kind people who supported me but I didn't anticipate this kind of apocalypse. 
as I reclaim neurons, rediscover those communities for what they are now and possibly what they meant to me previously, there is a distinct absence of group singing. Not for a lot longer though, I think. All the instruments are broken, but some of them still sound. Hope abounds. Slight and tuneful clip-clops of natural movement through quiet streets the internet brought to me. YouTube video, Handsome Goats, Welsh Streets. Let's wish them well. I never was in North Wales, though I tried. I was south in Swansea, then a few years later, Abu Vale. I was wandering through little alleys, bridle paths, hills and havens. Early in the misty morning, I went running. The mountains were broad and tall with clouds amongst them. The green and growing things shared energy with me. Awen and Nuivre, I should think, and I do. These are memory nutrients with deep roots. The photos I took then are blessings to me now. Without me even having found them, they made profound impressions. My cells hummed. Really, everything was humming. And in this brave springtime, it seems everything is humming now. And in this brave springtime, it seems everything is humming now. From April 3rd, 2020, at 4.33 a.m., Azin wrote maritime flags to me. 
the maritime flag. Oh, wow. The maritime flag, which is an equilateral red diamond on a white background, is the maritime flag for I am disabled, communicate with me. This one is a blue cross on a white background, which means stop carrying out your intentions and watch for my signals. A red X on a white background means I require assistance. And Azin wrote something to share, which she says fits the stop carrying out your intentions and watch for my signals. She writes, Many abled's say they don't want the responsibility or be involved when a solution goes wrong. Even though much of our life is going wrong due to abled's their civil devastation. And then they turn away from that as well, even though a tiny bit of aid when asked for would help and not go wrong. Azin wrote, Abled's generally when asked for help by multi-marginalized survivors of severity don't want to get involved even if it is something simple like asking around for a used tablet so someone can maintain functional connectivity. They act as if we are asking for a kidney or something. Or they suggest things that have proven themselves not to work with or for us, like the government and hospitals. When we suggest ways that do keep us safe, those things are dangerous, they scream. Don't go camping in nature. Don't live in a remote eco-sanctuary. Don't go sailing. We don't want to be around that and be responsible if something goes wrong. Azin writes, Who asked you, Abled? Or who said you were responsible when we live and create our own solutions to problems you have never experienced or maybe never even heard of before we told you? When Nia Locke posted an image quote from Morgan M. Page that reads, If a marginalized person is speaking to their experience and you feel uncomfortable, sit with it and let that discomfort be productive. Don't try to get away from it. That discomfort is teaching you something about your own positionality and blind spots. Listen to it.
Max is thinking about the trauma of not being able to deal with the trauma, which is what she thinks of frequently alongside privilege-related fragility and the scourge of ableism. Scourge of ableism. If only we can remember the wisdom of maritime flags, could we successfully get through to one another? Earlier this week, I recorded a post from Azin to share with you. Oh, well, that's a recording on a hard drive somewhere. Twenty twenty, April first, twenty one oh one twenty. Azin writes on the subjects of staying home and staying healthy. Getting very tired of the stay home, stay safe statements. Not everyone has a home, and not everyone in some form of a home is safe in it. This goes for enough people worldwide, millions of refugees and millions of abused people, to name just two groups, that the statement is seriously jarring. And stay healthy. I get the intention, but plenty of people are suffering with illness, including illness in pandemics that no one really cared about and no protective measures were taken by governments worldwide. I know technically everyone means well, but it is so painful really. I and so many others feel deep grief at being isolated in our homes for years without end or having lost our homes due to pandemic illnesses that governments and society didn't bother to care about. Please think about the privilege you exude with these phrases. In 2002, James Gottstein co-founded the Law Project for Psychiatric Rights at psychrights.org, excerpt. The Law Project for Psychiatric Rights, PsychRights, is a nonprofit, tax-exempt, 501c3, public interest law firm whose mission is to mount a strategic lit litigation campaign against forced psychiatric drugging and electroshock in the United States, akin to what Thurgood Marshall and the NAACP mounted in the 40s and 50s on behalf of African American civil rights. The public mental health system is creating a huge class of chronic mental patients through forcing them to take ineffective, yet extremely harmful drugs. As part of its mission, PsychRights is further dedicated to exposing the truth about these drugs and the courts being misled into ordering people to be drugged and subjected to other brain and body damaging interventions against their will. 
due to the pervasive psychiatric drugging of children and youth, psych rights has made attacking this problem a priority. Children are virtually always forced to take these drugs because it is the adults in their lives who are making the decision. This is an unfolding national tragedy of immense proportions. Psychrights.org Jim Gottstein writes in his recently published book, The Zyprexa Papers, While I was willing to subpoena the documents and provide them to the New York Times, which was completely consistent with Psychrights' mission, I had my own independent reasons for wanting the documents. This was for use in Psychrights' strategic litigation and public education efforts. The Myers case we had won just five months before had made whether a psychiatric drug was in the person's best interest a central part of whether the state could drug someone against their will. Documents showing Zyprexa to be very harmful would be extremely relevant and very powerful evidence against forcing someone to take it. Being able to demonstrate to the court that the psychiatrist testifying against their patient didn't know about such harm would be good to show the court because it tarnished their reputation as an M-deity. An M-deity. You'll find Jim's book, The Zyprexa Papers, at the top of the page when you visit psychrights.org. You can also find it in print and digital formats on Amazon. If you're trying to read it but you don't have money for the purchase, send an email to hello at intuitive.social and we will reach out through our community network in the hopes of getting you a copy. I found this to be an intriguing situation, Zyprexa Papers book excerpt. Earlier in the Zyprexa multi-district litigation, MDL, in 2005, Lilly had settled claims of almost 8,000 Zyprexa victims for $700 million, averaging a little under $90,000 per victim. This doesn't seem like a lot for giving someone diabetes, but it is even worse when you consider the lawyers took 40% and then Medicaid or Medicare were reimbursed another 30%. At that point, even the approximately $27,000 individual victims received on average put those who were on Medicaid and disability over the asset limit for eligibility. This meant they had to use the money from the settlement to treat their diabetes and otherwise spend it over the course of a year or two to maintain or get back their Medicaid and disability payments. I have a question written here. Is this still a common occurrence with monetary settlements and disabled claimants?
I would guess. Some of the following words from Jim's book, the great contempt, fear, and loathing that accompanies someone being identified as having been psychiatrically hospitalized is often referred to as stigma. I think stigma is very interesting because it is understood or defined in multiple ways depending on who you're talking to. Drug companies want you to let go of the stigma of taking their medications in the way they prefer. Individuals want the people and systems around them to let go of the stigma for perhaps different reasons. Many individuals I have conversed with and also myself want this kind of stigma to be released so that the policies of drug companies are disallowed from doing things that inherently increase stigmatization of what is called mental illness in communities. When drug companies increase the stigma of mental illness at the same time as they seem to rally against it, what I think of most often is gaslighting. But that couldn't really be what they're doing, could it? I ask myself the question, and I keep reading. The antidote to gaslighting appears to be effective communication that prioritizes the needs of individuals struggling most to communicate. That may be both or all parties in a dispute. Is the drug company struggling to communicate to get crucial needs met on a level with any individual patient or community member who is affected? Question mark. It seems to me that the drug company has a lot more power. It also seems to me that the drug company invests in its interest in limiting effective communication received from an individual patient. If the individuals surviving these challenges were truly heard, would we be able to wonder if Eli Lilly is engaging in corporate gaslighting? I mean, I don't know, maybe. Those are some of my notes from reading the Zyprexa papers by Jim Gottstein. Thank you to Jim Gottstein and more of that on the way. Oh, there's more. <sighs> I'm gonna stop for the day. Thank you to all who gave me such good energy. I honor you gratefully. <sighs> Take good care and blessings.